You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. Take a moment to consider a question with me. The question is this, what would the world look like if the church actually fulfilled her mission? What sort of conditions would be in place for us to have completed the task? What objectives must be accomplished for the mission to be fulfilled? What would the world look like if we successfully discipled the nations? What would the world look like if we actually, as Jesus instructed, taught the nations to obey every single commandment that He gave? Take a second and try to imagine what the world would be like if the church were in a position to say, mission accomplished. Are you using your imaginations? Now consider the question how that would impact local churches. What would we do with our time? Where would we put our energy if we actually accomplished the mission? What would happen to our missions programs, our missions committees, our missions conferences, our mission sermons? <laughs> if the mission were accomplished, how would we use all that extra money that we currently spend on the mission? Should we even raise the question, should we even think it possible that we might fulfill the mission Christ has given us. Questions like this remind us that our mission or missions, our programs and our projects are not ends in themselves. They are a means to an end. The mission is an instrument. Missions are a tool to accomplish a purpose, an end, a goal beyond themselves. The question then for us is, what's the end? What's the end game? What's the goal? What are we after? What does it mean to fulfill the mission? What is the end of our mission? It's helpful that we're not the first ones in our Wesleyan Methodist tradition to ask that sort of question. 1800s, 1700s I should say, excuse me, the 18th century, John Wesley would grab, gather his preachers to conference. And when they gathered for conferences to 
check on their progress and to keep one another accountable and to, to encourage each other and to focus on their mission, they would often raise the why question. You're familiar with the why question. I want to assume that we've asked the why question amongst ourselves before. Why does God have us as a group of people in this place at this time doing this work? Why? They put it this way, why has God seen fit to raise up the people called Methodists in the 18th century in England? And here's how they answered that question. They said, God has raised us up to reform the nation and to spread scriptural holiness across the land. That's in the minutes, if you want to go look them up. God has raised us up to reform the nation and spread scriptural holiness across the land. Wesley and the first generation of Methodists understood what we must embrace, that missions is a means, not an instrument. Excuse me, missions is a means and an instrument to an end or a goal. And the end is the full realization of the holy love of God reproduced in the bodies of His people spread across the land, this land, every land, the world. They understood missions is not the mission. Holiness is. Say that again. Missions is not the mission. Holiness is the mission. Now if we want to dig into the relationship between missions and holiness, how mission is a means to the end of global holiness, and that's really what we're claiming here. The mission, the global mission, is God's instrument to reproduce His holy character for His glory, our good, the life of the world, amongst every person in the world. Ezekiel 36 is crucial. Ezekiel is writing to the Hebrew people. His representatives, and yet when they've gone the to the nation, we are their told, exile they profane from their God's name. They were called they to, to leave their land. His name. It's a going fancy to a way of show, saying they were called and to show the everyone the holiness of his name. Because God, instead of showing everyone the has had holiness to do something of his name by to get their attention. His holy character. They're supposed to be his people. They're supposed to be with integrity by not worshiping false gods. Instead of that, they profaned his name. They dragged his name through the mud because he had placed his name on them as a people by their murderous ways, by their idolatry by their rejection of His covenant, by their forsaking of His commandments, by their disregarding of the vocation to which He's called them to be a light to the nations, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. That's their charter. That's who they are. That's who they are supposed to be. And if, they're going, if they do that, and if they do it faithfully, they sanctify His name among the nations. And God's indictment of them 
in Ezekiel 36, through the mouth of the prophet, verse 22, say to the house of Israel, this is what the Lord God says, I'm about to act, but not for your sake, for the sake of my holy name. You've profaned my name. You've taken my character and you've brought shame upon it. You've committed libel. You've misrepresented me. You've lived in ways that don't tell the truth about my character, God says to them. You see, there's a relationship between God's name and His character. His name isn't just His label. It's not like, oh, hey, give God a call and let Him know what we need. or something. You know, it's, Names don't always carry deep significance for us the way they did in the ancient world. But in the ancient world, your name was an identifier for the depths of your character. That's why at crucial points in people's lives, Jacob to Israel, a name is changed. Because God is changing their identities, changing their character. He's working transformatively in their life. And that change in character is marked by a change in their name. And so if God takes His name and says, Hey, Israel, I'm giving you my name. You've got to bear my name. You take up my name. And you carry my name to the nations. Instead of sanctifying my name among the nations, you have, verse 22, profaned my name among the nations. So I've taken my reputation, I've entrusted it to you, and instead of telling the truth about my name and my character, you've lied about it. Sin is not just breaking God's law. Sin misrepresents, it tells a lie about the character of God. When God's people live in darkness, we tell the world a falsehood about the character of our God. That's the issue here, isn't it? That's the issue. So God will act. He intends to sanctify His name. He's got to vindicate his name. How's he going to do that? How's he going to pull it off? Well, good question. He tells us in verse 23. I will sanctify my name. I will restore my reputation. I will restore my character. The nations will know that I am the Lord. That I am faithful. That I have integrity. That I am righteous. That I keep my promises. The nations will know that I am the Lord. The nations will know that God is God. How's that going to work out, God? How are they going to know it? Your representatives are a mess. God says, here's how I'm going to do it. I'm not going to do it apart from you. I'm not just going to disregard you or write you off or give up on you. I'm not going to shuffle you off to the back of the line and just do this myself with this sort of mystical cosmic revelation of the sanctity of my name. No, what I'm going to do is make my holiness known to the nations through you. Through your bodies. Through your character. Through your faithfulness. Through your integrity. Through your truthfulness. Through your 
community life for all of these in all of these dynamics. Here's what he says: the nation shall know. I mean, that's why this is about missions, by the way. How do the nations know who God is? Here's how. The nation shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when through you I display my holiness before their eyes. Through you. Why did Wesley and the first generation of Methodists answer the why question with this sentence? Our why is to spread scriptural holiness across the land because they understood that the nations will know God is God when His people embody His character. Missions is not the mission holiness is. If we want the world to know God, It only happens when His people embody His holy character. And it's crucial to see. He does it through them. Not apart from them, not around them, not beside them, not step aside while I handle my business because you obviously are failures at this. No, He says, I'm going to take you and I'm going to do this through you. That was always the plan. It's always the plan going back to the garden when God took a human being and made that human being in His image. When Adam was created in the image of God, when Eve was created in the image of God, God was signaling that He is designing human bodies to embody His character. To show the world what He's like. To take up His name as His representatives and tell the world the truth about who He is. been the plan from the start. It was the plan when he rescued Israel, wasn't it? We talk about Exodus 19 a lot because it's the charter of the people of God. At the foot of Mount Sinai, God calls Moses and the people whom he's just delivered from slavery to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A holy nation. I'm going to give you these commandments, not because I'm a stickler for the rules, but because you need to know what my character is like, holy. And you need to know what it looks like when you don't embody my character, sin. You need to know what it looks like when you do. So this has been the story the whole time. Holiness has always been the mission. The people of God are going to be a kingdom of priests if they're going to represent Him to the nations. They've got to embody His character and the word for His character is holiness in the Bible. Now God's got a problem and you can kind of imagine the Hebrew people reminding of Him, him of His problem. You know, God, You're going to show the nations Your holiness through us. Have you been listening to Yourself? Because Just a few minutes ago, you had Ezekiel tell us this sort of thing. Mortal, when the house of Israel lived on their own soil, they defiled it with their ways and their deeds. I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they shed, for the idols with which they defiled. Like, these guys have a rap sheet as long as you're armed. You can almost imagine 
Some of the Hebrew people saying, God, you're going to show your holiness through us. You've been, just been rehearsing all of the ways that we fall short of your holiness. Remember, we're the ones who profane your name. We're the ones who've committed idolatry. We're the ones who've enacted murderous ways. We're the ones who have been unfaithful. How are you going to do Like, you can't. How are you going to do that? And God says, here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you. Verse 25. After I've gathered you. I'm going to take your dirty, filthy idolatry and baptize it. I'm going to wash it away. I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you. And I'm going to cleanse you from all your uncleannesses. Not half of them. Not 75% of your uncleannesses. Not 99%. Not 99.999999%. You shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. Take a second and imagine what that would feel like in your life. All the things that bring shame. All the things that produce guilt. All of the words that have been spoken that hurt people you love. What would it look like to be cleansed from all of it? All of it. He doesn't say, I'm going to bring you back to the land and you're just going to stumble through life forever struggling under the weight of your sin. That's not what God says to His people. He says, I'm going to bring you back with all the dirt and all the filth and all the mud and I'm going to wash you. I'm going to cleanse you. God says, let me put it another way. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a new spirit. You've got a heart of stone that is selfish and hard and cold. I'm going to take that heart of stone out of your chest and I'm going to replace it with a heart that is soft and warm and malleable and formable. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a new spirit. The spirit that I give you will not be just any spirit. Verse 27, I will put my own spirit within you. And when I do, you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Right? Here are the many ways that you've transgressed and told the nations a lie about my character. God says, I'm going to show the nations that I'm God. I'm going to do it through you. I'm going to take out your stone, cold, rock, solid heart. I'm going to give you a new heart and I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm going to cleanse you and I'm going to put a new life inside of you. And the purpose of that new life is so that you can honor me with your life. 
Missions is not the mission. Holiness is. I will put my spirit within you and make you follow my statutes and be careful to observe all my ordinances. Not, again, because God is just a legalistic stickler. Because by honoring Him, His people declare to the nations that He is God. Do you think Baal has the power to cleanse you from all your uncleannesses? Ishtar? Name any other ancient pagan gods. Name any modern pagan gods. Do we think any of them that we give our allegiance to have the power to cleanse us from all, not most, not some, all of our uncleannesses. Who is the only one who can do that? The God revealed in Jesus and the Spirit. He's the only one. So the nations know God is God because this God does things no other gods can do, which, real, which reveals that those other gods aren't actually gods. <laughs> the nations will know that I'm the Lord when I take your dirty, filthy, sinful lives that lie about my character every day and cleanse you and heal you give you a new heart and allow my spirit to commune in your inner life and once your heart is transformed your whole embodied life can honor once your heart is transformed, you can tell the truth about me. Do you want to tell the truth about your God? Do your kids, your parents, your colleagues, the church, your neighbors, the nations? The word for telling the truth about God in the Bible? You guessed it. It's holiness. I like to say that Ezekiel 36 is a text with a trajectory. You know what a trajectory is. We're heading in this direction. This is where we're going. Ezekiel 36 is anticipating and looking forward to the day that the Lord Jesus Christ would cleanse us with His blood. Ezekiel 36 is racing toward the day when the Spirit of God would descend in tongues of fire upon the people of God and empower them to do what, Jesus says, to be my witnesses in your neighborhood, in your county, in your state, your country, and to the ends of the earth. You can see how these two texts relate. So Jesus has been raised from the dead. Nobody saw that coming. So they hadn't been paying. 
They were, even if they were paying attention, they didn't see the big picture. He's crucified. We put our hopes in this guy. We thought he was the Messiah. Our hopes have been dashed because dead messiahs are false messiahs in first century Judaism. And then he's raised from the dead and shows up, which is serious. Didn't see that coming. So we got some questions for you, Jesus. And the disciples gather with him, and we're told at the beginning of Acts that one of their questions, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom of Israel? To Israel. Right? Because since Ezekiel wrote and said, hey, one day I'm going to bring you back into your land, and I'm going to put my spirit in you, I'm going to restore you, I'm going to do all these spectacular things. They had come back to the land, but the temple was never back to its former glory. The Spirit had never descended. The Shekinah presence of God had never come back the way it had. And they had gone through century after century under one foreign oppressor after another. And so finally the disciples say, you know, 600 years of this, we've been living under the thumb of pagan oppression. Ezekiel said, We're going to come back to the land and God's going to be our God and we're going to be His people and He's going to bless us and it's going to be this great joyful thing. Is this the time when the kingdom will be restored? We're waiting. Jesus doesn't say yes and doesn't say no. (laughs) Don't you hate it when He does that? He just says it's not for you to know. Seasons and times. He does say you will receive power, and power sounds kind of like a kingdom word to me, doesn't it, you? And one theologian says maybe he's saying yes, but it's not going to look like you thought. Yes, the kingdom is being restored, and you thought it was going to look like someone like David or Solomon on the throne and the temple and armies and national strength and national wealth and, and everyone offering temples and the sacrifices and all of that. That You thought it was going to look like that for the kingdom to be restored. Actually, it's going to look counterintuitively like all of you carrying the gospel to the nations. So yeah, it's time. But everything you thought about what it would look like has to change. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Pay attention to how the land, (laughs) the promise is you come to the land, you'll dwell, I'm going to bring, I'm going to cleanse you, I'm going to bring you back. You'll dwell in the land. Now Jesus is revealing that the land, Jerusalem, a little strip east of the Mediterranean, is just the starting point. You're back, and now it's time to go. This is home base. This is where the project launches from bringing you in. I've collected you. I've brought you together. 
I've brought you out of exile. I've brought you out of your sin. I've brought you. I'm, I've cleansed you with my blood. And now I'm giving you my spirit. And I'm going to give you my spirit, not so you can hang out in the land, but so that you can go to the nations and be my witnesses. Witnesses to what? Witnesses to the sanctity of my name. And how do you witness to the sanctity of God's name? By embodying His character. That's the mission. This project, that project are parts, tools, instruments, means to the end. They are crucial, they are important, but they are not an end in themselves. The end game, the goal, the telos, is global holiness. I wonder despite all of our talk about the Great Commission Disciple the nations. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Despite all of our talk about the power of the Spirit, you will receive power and be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. I wonder if we really believe Jesus. It sounds to me, I could be wrong, but it sounds to me when I read the Great Commission, That Jesus actually expects us to do it. That's why I asked the question at the beginning of the sermon, like, what would it look like to actually do it? Disciple the nations. Teach everyone in the world, whether you like them or not, to obey everything I've commanded you. What would that... Like, when Jesus said that, what was He thinking? When Jesus said that, What sort of world was he thinking we would wind up with? And I think we kind of get tunnel vision and we focus on the crises of our day and we think the world is just going you know where in a handbasket and and things are a mess and we've got this crisis and, and, and we're losing these freedoms and we feel scared to say our opinion in public because we don't want to get canceled and, and things are just a disaster and we, we can't, we don't, we, we, we're struggling here and we feel like the thing is just closing in and it must be the end times because after all, how could it possibly get worse? Consider this. How many Christians were there when Jesus said you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you? Like how many? Ballpark it. A couple dozen maybe? There's more Christians in this church than there were in the whole world. (laughs) And you're just one. One stat says at the end of the first century, A.D. 100, number of Christians in the world was one in 360. Out of every 360 people, you'd have one Jesus follower. You know what that ratio is now? One third. One in three. That sounds like progress to me. Of all the people in the world who are willing to say, I I follow Jesus, 
you're likely to get one in three. That's remarkable, friends. Absolutely remarkable. Since the resurrection to over 2,000 years, the number of people who claim Jesus has gone from a few dozen to 2.3 billion. (laughs) What a trajectory! The number of Christians in the last 200 years on the face of the planet has quadrupled. Quadrupled. Four times as many. So, take that perspective and reread the Great Commission. Go teach the nations to obey everything I've commanded you, you 11. (laughs) You will be my witnesses around the corner and to the ends of the earth. You're going to plant churches. You're going to do evangelism. You're going to not stop with evangelism. You're going to do discipleship. You're going to teach people to obey me. Everything I said, you're going to read your Bibles. You're going to pray. You're going to sing. You're going to worship. You're going to eat bread. You're going to drink wine. You're going to do all of these things with the goal of filling the world with the sanctity of my name. And we've gone over 2,000 years from a few dozen to two billion. Imagine what it'll be like 2,000 years from now. Imagine what it'll be like 10,000 years from now with that sort of progress. Now, we get locked in regionally. We get locked in regionally and we think, man, it's feeling kind of tight for us around here. And, you know, when I was a kid, everybody went to church twice a week. Now we're doing good if they come twice a month. And it just feels like there's this increasing secularism in the U.S. And we're struggling with that. And we're not quite sure how to do it. And people are talking about being post-Christian. And what does that even mean? And How do we minister to people where everybody's skeptical and they don't just automatically show up and maybe they come, the parents and the grandparents, but the kids are not a given and we're just in crisis mode in the U.S. But if you were to go to Africa, you would see people walking for hours to worship God with the church. Millions of people. I have a friend who used to be the president of a seminary in Haiti. And uh, some of you may have seen this a while back. He shared some pictures of folks carrying their chair in Haiti, walking miles, carrying their chair on their head because we didn't have a nice cushy chair for you when you got there. Would you come if you had to bring your own chair? That's a, that's a serious question, isn't it? Go to China. Forget the chair. You've got to meet in a tunnel. And if they find out, we may never see you again. Christianity in China is exploding exponentially. Global Christianity is soaring. The North American Christianity might be in a bit of a dip, but taken in light of God's entire world, 
things are going quite well. Thanks be to God. So be encouraged. The church has made remarkable progress. Does that mean the church is perfect? No. Does that mean every last person who says they're a Christian really walks deeply with Jesus? No. That's not the story I'm trying to sell you today. I'm trying to invite us to think about what Jesus has called us to from a different angle. Because I think we take the Great Commission and we say, yeah, Jesus wants us to do missions and we get focused on the mission and we forget that the mission is actually bigger than the mission. The mission isn't the mission. The mission is everyone in the world experiencing the beauty of God's transforming power. Everyone. And we get caught up in the news and we get caught up in the craziness. And we get caught up thinking that we're just supposed to kind of nod our head at the Great Commission and do lip service to it while we wait for Jesus to whisk us off to some other world and get us out of the wrath and the whatever's coming and all of the pain because everything just feels like it's falling apart. When if you zoom out and you look at the whole world, the gospel is flourishing. The gospel is flourishing. And it's beautiful. It is absolutely beautiful. One of the best things happening in United Methodism right now is happening in Africa. Because while we're just consumed with conflict and infighting, they're declaring the gospel and teaching people to obey Jesus and the Spirit of God is moving in stunning ways. And I'm excited to be a part of that, even if I'm on the other side of the world. Brothers and sisters, Jesus didn't die to give us a project. He doesn't intend us to finish. I'll say that again. Jesus did not die to give us a project. He does not intend us to finish. His blood was shed. His flesh was torn to cleanse us so that we could receive His Spirit. And in receiving His Spirit, receive the power to carry the transforming grace that comes through the gospel to our neighbors and the nations. Not just so they can get saved and tick a box, but so that they can come to obey everything Jesus commanded and so embody His character. That's the end game. That's how God is known. That's what it means to know God. There's a prophet named Habakkuk. You've probably heard of him. He lived in a day of bloodshed, of woe. And yet, in the middle of the chaos, in the middle of the chaos and the terror, he had a God given vision 
of the future. And this is the way he described it. He said, the day will come when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The day will come when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. My hunch from reading Ezekiel is that he does not intend to do that apart from his people. He intends to give the world, the earth, the beauty of the knowledge of his glory through you. So we're back to that same question. What does it look like to fulfill the mission? What's the end of the mission? It is a world, an earth, filled with the knowledge of God. Does God expect us to actually do that? In the power of His Spirit? Is His grace sufficient for that task? And if it is, what has to happen in my life and your life to make it happen. Don't get me wrong. I don't expect the mission to be fulfilled in my lifetime. This is a mini millennia project. It's been going for 2,000 years. There may be 20 more to come. 20 more thousand, not 20 years. <laughs> what do we have to do now to help our children, our grandchildren, our great, 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 great grandchildren be able to say mission accomplished. And when we answer that question, the only appropriate next step is to orient everything we have towards it. Missions, not the mission. Global holiness is the mission. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.